Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome back to the Sci-Fi Feminist Podcast. Today, I have another exciting and interesting episode lined up for you. Today, I'll be talking about a topic that is very current in research on feminism and popular culture, which is fourth wave feminism and Laura Croft. So today's episode is based on a paper that I wrote for a book that is upcoming. It's an academic book, but um, yeah, as usual, I will present the information to you in an easy to understand way. And uh, I hope you will find this topic as interesting as I do while researching it. So yes, welcome back. Um, an update from my side. It's been a very, very cold winter in South Africa, but finally it's getting a little bit warmer. So I'm excited for that. And um, I think this is a segment I should introduce into every episode, uh, which is a movie recommendation segment. Um, I'm saying that because I just saw the weirdest movie. And um, yeah, even though it's so weird, I think it's a very cool watch. So if you're uh, bored, <laughs> you're looking for something to watch or to do, I highly recommend the movie Labyrinth. So yeah, I, I watched it because I saw another podcast. I can't remember its name. They did a comparison between Labyrinth and Gunpowder Milkshake. And of course, I also uh, did an episode on Gunpowder Milkshake. So I was interested, what is this Labyrinth movie? It turns out it's David Bowie and it's a fantasy movie and it's made in the 80s. And it's just so trippy and crazy and very good entertainment. So I just finished watching it and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I think from now on, every episode, every week, I will give a movie recommendation, uh, not like a movie that everyone knows, but maybe something a little bit out there um, so you can watch that. So yeah, I highly recommend watching Labyrinth. <laughs> okay, now um, let me get into today's episode then on Laura Croft and Fourth Wave Feminism. All right, now before getting into today's content, I highly recommend that you listen to episode 8 and 9 that I did on the old version of Lara Croft, or what I call the post-feminist version of Lara Croft, and the rebooted version of Lara Croft. If you're unfamiliar with this video game character, uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, then I recommend listening to those two episodes for context. Basically, Lara Croft underwent a transition in 2013, and um, it's in this transition that I call her or term her a fourth wave feminist action heroine. Now, just to briefly recap what the waves of feminism are and, um, you know, what they stood for. The first wave took place in the late 19th century, so that's like late 1800s, and that was mostly uh, concerning women's right to vote. Um, there is a very good movie. It's called Suffragette. It stars Meryl Streep and Helena Bonham Carter and some of my favorite actresses. That is a very good account of first wave feminism. Then for about 40 or 50 years, there was not much happening in terms of feminism. I think because there was like two world wars. So everyone was a bit preoccupied with that. 
Um, and then here around the 1950s, 1960s in Europe and America, there was a renewed interest in feminism, and that's what they call the second wave. Now, um, you can also listen to the episode on second wave feminism and pop culture. Not going to go into that. And then uh, around the 90s, we saw a move into the third wave. And uh, the third wave had different parts of feminism, like post-feminism, cyber-feminism, eco-feminism, which I'm also not going to go into today. But um, yeah, all of these things are contained in the other podcast episodes. So yeah, you can go check it out if you want to get some more context on feminism. But then the fourth wave... Now, the fourth wave, it's still debated whether there actually is a fourth wave of feminism or not. Some theorists say the fourth wave started in around 2008. Some say only around 2011. Um, <clears throat> some say 2013. So it's really a very contested issue. And then some theorists say that there is no fourth wave. <laughs> you know, we are still in the third wave of feminism. So... Today, I'm going to talk about the fourth wave as if it actually exists, because I believe it does. One thing that they say characterizes the fourth wave is that a lot of feminist activism these days takes place on social media. And they say it's the social media activism, like Twitter activism, hashtags, um, Facebook uh, campaigns, all of these things. They all form part of what is now the fourth wave of feminism. So I was quite interested in this. And then I thought, okay, if this is the fourth wave, what does a fourth wave action heroine look like? Because we get the post-feminist action heroine, who I will elaborate on a little bit in today's episode. And we get these uh, cyber-feminist action heroines. We get second wave action heroines. They're all, uh, like I said, contained in the previous episode, so you can give that a listen. But then what does fourth wave heroism look like? Well, the first thing is that recently we saw an increase in desexualized heroines. So that's not only in video games, but in films as well. So some examples would be Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games, Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road, Nakia from Black Panther... That's all in movies. In TV series, we see in Star Trek, like Michael Burnham from Star Trek Discovery. Even Seven of Nine, that was very sexualized in Star Trek Voyager. Recently, she underwent a change where she's no longer this sexualized heroine. And in video games, of course, the new version of Lara Croft. We have the women from the more recent Assassin's Creed games like Evie from Assassin's Creed Syndicate, um, Aya from Assassin's Creed Origins, and Cassandra from Assassin's Creed Odyssey. We have Senua from Hellblade, Senua Sacrifice. We have Aloy from Horizon Zero Dawn. We have Amanda Ripley from Alien Isolation. We have Ellie from The Last of Us. We have, uh, what's her name, from Star Wars Battlefront 2. Uh, yes, Aiden Versio. We have all of these. The list goes on and on. Heroines that are desexualized. So what does desexualized mean? It basically means that, first of all, their um, body proportions are more moderate. So you don't have these heroines with huge breasts, <laughs> a thin waist, and wide hips. But like we see in the new version of Laura Croft, 
you know, they're relatively more flat chested, um, more like normal body type. And also in terms of their clothing, their clothing does not function to draw attention to their bodies. Like if you've seen Katniss Everdeen's outfits, um, you know, they're all very, uh, they cover up her whole body and they're not there to draw t- emphasis to her breasts, her waist or her butt <laughs> or her thighs or her her stomach, anything like that. So the first thing that fourth wave heroism then entails is the desexualization of heroines. Now, just to give you some context, the earlier version of Laura Croft, so that's the version of the character that we see between 1996 and 2008. According to fan forums, her breast-waist-hip ratio was 34D, okay, 24 and 35. So that is basically the the proportions of Barbie. And Barbie has also come under a lot of scrutiny because they say that Barbie presents an impossible ideal for women. So the old version of Lara Croft, you know, she's really the impossible ideal. And then she's also apparently 180 centimeters tall, which is like uh, supermodels <laughs> are that tall. I'm about 160. So yeah, you can imagine if you've ever, okay, you've never seen me, but, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm pretty average height. Uh, 180 centimeters is really tall. And then a weight of 59 kilograms. Okay. To give you some context, I'm 160 centimeters tall and I'm about 59 kilograms. So she's like impossibly skinny <laughs> too. So, um, you know, that is a very idealized type of beauty that is really unattainable. But then the new version of Laura Croft, you know, she's about my height. Uh, there's this one scene in Shadow of the Tomb Raider where she's standing next to her friend Jonah and she always kind of looks up at the other characters because they're much taller than her because she's about 160, 165 centimeters in the um, the rebooted games. And then also, if you've seen the new version of Lara Croft, if you've played the new Tomb Raider games, her outfits are also not revealing at all. Okay, sometimes she wears these tribal outfits that are quite elaborate. Uh, there's this one outfit where she even wears a mask, which is pretty cool. Or she wears these uh, like camo pants and these guerrilla warfare types of outfits. Um, there's one outfit where she does wear the tank top, but it's it's not nearly as revealing as the other outfits that she wears in the earlier Tomb Raider games. If you are, f- are familiar with them, um, she usually wears in the earlier Tomb Raider games a crop top. So the crop top, it shows off her nice big 34D <laughs> breasts and then her thin waist. And then she wears these short shorts like hot pants. And then she has the twin pistols that really conveniently draws all the attention to her thighs and her butt and the groin area. So that is the first thing that I have um, identified as the fourth wave version of femininity that we see. So what makes this fourth wave? Well, the fourth wave is in some literature characterized by the critique of beauty culture. So we see a lot of fourth wave activism. There was this uh, one um, protest on Twitter 
There was a, an ad. It was the Are You Bikini Body Ready campaign. I'm not sure if you are familiar with it. You can just Google it and then you'll see the image come up. There was an ad that um, had this very, uh, you know, fit, skinny woman in a bikini. And then it said, Are You Bikini Body Ready? So that was the ad. And then some fourth wave feminists, well, I call them fourth wave, but <laughs> women on Twitter were quite upset with this because, you know, why do you need to look like a supermodel to be bikini body ready, you know? So what they did is some women would dress up in their bikinis and actually go stand next to the billboard and be like, yeah, we are bikini body ready, you know, but we look like normal people. We don't look like that. And then some, some activisms involved actually photoshopping pictures of normal women in bikinis into that picture. So that was the campaign. And then they say it was fourth wave feminists who then critiqued this campaign uh, via those different methods. So then if we see desexualized heroines and we see a critique of this Western beauty culture, then we can draw the conclusion that actually this is a fourth wave version of female heroism. All right, so then the second aspect of fourth wave heroism that we see is that Lara Croft is portrayed as a complex emotive character rather than a gun-toting action heroine. Now, I quote that from Esther McCallum Stewart. So the complexity of female protagonists is actually identified by authors writing on movies, on fourth wave feminism and uh, female heroes, it is identified as another um, key aspect of these fourth wave heroines. So, for example, in an analysis of Disney's Maleficent from 2014 as a fourth wave heroine, a theorist called Melissa Wheeler, she describes how various aspects of Maleficent's narrative, such as, and I quote, her complexity, which is primarily propounded by her friend and lover Stefan's betrayal, and her relationship to his daughter Aurora contribute to a more nuanced understanding of women's identities. Okay, and then also in terms of the Hunger Games, another theorist named Paula Alvarez, she notes how Katniss Everdeen is, and I quote, presented through the films and novels as a complex, well-developed character. And then another theorist named Shoshana Kesok, she draws the same conclusion about the woman in Black Panther and also Wonder Woman in the new Wonder Woman movie. And then, of course, um, regarding the 2018 Tomb Raider movie starring Elisa Vikander, uh, I heard there's another one in the making now, so that's quite exciting. I really enjoyed that movie. But anyway, uh, the theorist draws a similar conclusion about the new version of Laura, that she's also portrayed as a complex and emotive character, even in the 2018 Tomb Raider movie. Now, to give some examples from the video games that make Laura a more complex and more emotive character. First of all, when she makes her first kill in the Tomb Raider reboot game from 2013. Um, she first kills an animal. I think she hunts a deer for food. And then she kills a human being. 
first the first time she does that she's really traumatized <laughs> she's shaking like oh my goodness i just had to kill this animal but you know i need to do it for survival and then when she kills the first person um her hand kind of shakes <laughs> while she's holding the gun and um yeah she she really experiences some trauma uh after her first kill Obviously, um, and I thought this is one part where the game was a little bit, you know, she's very traumatized with her first kill, but then for the rest of the game, she kills like hundreds of people. <laughs> and for the other two games too, she the, like the body count is really high in the Tomb Raider games, especially the recent ones. And she kills them quite brutally too. Um, so that escalated quite quickly, you know, um, after killing one person after that, she's like, eh, okay, whatever, you know. But anyway, at least there's an attempt to show that she's more complex, you know, she's actually traumatized by these kills. And then she even expresses self-doubt sometimes, and she encourages herself with phrases like, you can do this, Lara. And then there's also a lot of dialogue in the game, uh, where she talks to the other characters that reveals more about um, her, you know, complex emotions that she's experiencing. And then also diary entries that reveals things about her past that we didn't know and flashbacks and personal discoveries. So all of these things, and I quote from McCallum Stewart, link the action to a complex plot. And even more so in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, actually in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Lara is presented as an almost unlikable character. Uh, she's not the undisputed heroine of the game <laughs> anymore. Um, we see for the first time a heroine that she has mistakes and flaws. You know, she's very ambitious. She gets tunnel vision. She's very self-righteous and she kind of gives into her self-interest and ignorance. And because of this, she sets the apocalypse in motion and she actually causes the death of many innocent people. So all of these things make New Lara a much more complex character. And what I would also say is a fourth wave version of female heroism. Because uh, for the fourth wave, it seems that emotional complexity of female characters is important because fourth wave feminists want to present more authentic and nuanced versions of female heroism. You know, um, and this relates to intersectionality too, which is a recent emphasis in fourth wave feminism. Uh, again, I'm not going to talk about intersectionality today. I highly recommend you listen to my panel at the Women at Warp Festival, the IDIG podcast festival. I talked about Michael Burnham and intersectionality. So if you want to know more about intersectionality, listen to that episode. I think it is episode 24. Yes. So, um, but, you know, this recent emphasis that fourth wave feminists put on intersectionality, I really think that contributes to showing heroines or characters that are more complex. Okay, and then another aspect is a balanced combination of femininity and masculinity. So this further contributes to their complexity. Now, I'm going to briefly recap post-feminism here. When we look at post-feminist portrayals of women, and especially of Laura Croft, we see that many action heroines that started becoming uh, or appearing in films and video games around 2000s, um, late 1990s, early 2000s, they're really hyper-masculine in their actions. So they're like extremely violent, <laughs> extremely forceful. Um, they don't show any emotion, any remorse, anything like that. 
But then they are hyper-feminine in their bodies. We see, um, even though their character is so masculine, you know, they're so violent and forceful, they have these bodies that are super-feminine with, like, huge breasts, <laughs> thin waists, wide hips, and um, they're very seductive and very sexy. So it's really uh, quite contradictory. Um, a lot of people have described the these heroines as kind of schizophrenic characters. You know, they, they really go between masculinity and femininity to the extreme, you know. And then this, of course, presents the impossible ideal. You know, you have this heroine that is super tough, super strong, super fast, um, super powerful. She doesn't uh, feel any remorse or emotion. She's basically this, like, machine. But she's also super beautiful and super sexy, which is really the impossible ideal. Now, in contrast, fourth wave heroism seems to favor characters that don't have these extremes, but rather presents ordinary women that possess a special talent or unique ability beyond the average person in the narrative world. So we see with the new version of Lara Croft 2, you know, she starts out as, you know, a girl on a ship. <laughs> trying to, you know, become an explorer and then the ship gets stranded and then over time she develops, you know, these really heroic qualities while just trying to survive, you know. So definitely she has some inherent heroic qualities, you know, but um, she's not from the beginning this like super heroic, perfect, awesome woman, <laughs> you know. She, she kind of um, develops these skills as a result of just trying to survive in her circumstances. Now, some theorists have noted that this blend between masculinity and femininity is also seen in other contemporary heroines. So talking about Nakia from Black Panther, Valerie Frankel says that Nakia solves problems through feminine solves problems through feminine empathy and compassion, blended with fierce independence and warrior skills. And then Melissa Wheeler also notes that Maleficent combines maternal roles such as protector, mentor, and companion, as well as fertility, compassion, and sympathy, which are all traditionally associated with femininity, with classically masculine attributes of fierceness, assertiveness, and power. So as a fourth wave heroine, Laura, of course, also possesses attributes conventionally associated with both masculinity and femininity. So in terms of her masculinity, it is primarily expressed through her display of violence. Okay, so Laura Croft did not become less violent <laughs> after her reboot. Actually, you know, at some point I, I felt like her violence is quite gratuitous. Um, you know, in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, she makes this knife out of a piece of plain wreckage. And then she just sneaks up behind people and like slits their throats and is very violent. And I still find it quite interesting that this display of violence is a characteristic of heroism. You know, um, actually, Lara Croft, when you think about it, she's not a hero. She's just a mass murderer. <laughs> you know, the body count in the Tomb Raider games, the new ones, is so high. I think she kills over... It must be more than two or three hundred people in the game. So violence is still a very big part of Lara. And this is a traditionally masculine thing. So that makes her, um, that, that shows her masculine side. 
And then in terms of her display of femininity, this is actually facilitated by the games. Uh, I, I say the ludological elements, but that's basically the gameplay. Ludology is the study of games. So um, the gameplay of the game, it emphasizes vulnerability. So when you play the new Tomb Raider games, you know, you always feel like Lara is going to die at any <laughs> second or you know there could be something around the corner of course you know the old tomb raider games they're also filled with traps and things but because the new games are open world it means that you know even though the the world is created for lara she's not in total control of her environment to the extent that she is in the previous games so there are some distances that lara can't jump and it, then she or if she makes a jump she grabs onto the ledge and then if you don't click a button, then she's going to just fall <laughs> off the ledge and die. So um, that is that is one part. It's her vulnerability. And, you know, of course, it might be problematic to say that vulnerability is a traditionally feminine characteristic. You know, it's not necessarily. But, you know, traditionally, <laughs> um, we see damsels in distress. You know, they, they're all very vulnerable. So it's constructed as a feminine thing, vulnerability, you know, but I know this argument has some issues because why, why do they need to be vulnerable, um, to be feminine? You know, that's some issues, but I'm not going to go <laughs> into that. Um, another part of new Laura's vulnerability is her psychological vulnerability. Actually, in the Ultimator games, like I mentioned, she just kills without remorse. You know, she just kills people, animals, anything that gets in her way without feeling any remorse for them. Now, in the Rise of the Tomb Raider trailer, actually, Lara Croft is shown in a psychologist's office following the events of the Tomb Raider reboot. So it shows that actually all of these traumatic events that she experienced and killing so many people actually had a, an effect on her psychology. Uh, which is a big change from the old version of Lara. That's just like, ta 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 kill everything, don't feel anything, I'm the best, you know. <laughs> um, then also in some DLC introduced for Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, it explores Lara's troubled mental state further. We see that um, there's a DLC called Lara's Nightmare in Shadow Rise of the Tomb Raider, sorry, in Rise of the Tomb Raider, where she kind of has this nightmare and um, these manifestations of her fears. They kind of uh, come up and they try to kill her. They look like zombies. So you need to kind of get rid of her, these fears, and then um, get the skulls of rage, and then you get out of the nightmare. And um, there's another one in Shadow of the Tomb Raider called The Nightmare Path of Fear, which was also released in 2019 after the game, where Laura re revisits a traumatic childhood memory and she also confronts the fear of losing her friend Jonah. And um, she also comes face to face with her true self, you know, this version of herself that is not ideal. So we see that Laura Croft is more, uh, not only complex, but also more vulnerable and in that sense then she shows traditional markers of masculinity and femininity which makes her yeah more complexly flawed character 
And this can be considered a very a clearly fourth wave version of heroism, you know, a more nuanced representation of female experiences and a more uh, detailed interpretation of femininity. So the final aspect of fourth wave heroism that I will touch on today is intersectionality and inclusivity. Now, uh, there's a much more detailed discussion of intersectionality in episode 24 of this podcast. So go ahead and listen to that if you like to. But to briefly elaborate, um, post-feminism, it's criticized for favoring exclusively Western, white, heterosexual, middle-class women, <laughs> which is also reflected in post-feminist portrayals of women. So, for example, the old version of Lara Croft, she's white, affluent, she's cisgender, heterosexual. She is really a very uh, limited version of femininity. Um, but fourth wave feminism indicates an awareness of these exclusionary premises by acknowledging the intersections of class, race, sexuality, gender, ethnicity, and ability in the constitution of women's identity. So intersectionality, to give like a very brief explanation or definition for it, it says that women experience oppression in varying configurations and in varying degrees of intensity, and that cultural patterns of oppression are not only interrelated, but are bound together and influenced by the intersectional systems of society. And we see this in the media recently, too. If you recall Brie Larson, who played uh, Captain Marvel, she was under quite some... Uh, or there was some robust, you know, online debate because she asked to be interviewed by a disabled journalist. And then she also said that movie reviewers are overwhelmingly white male. That is her quote. And um, she wanted the film industry to be more inclusive in terms of who writes about it. That's just one example. I'm not going to uh, give more examples. Um, yeah, please go listen to episode 24 for more on intersectionality. So then even though the new version of Lara, you know, she's still white and she's part of the upper class. Actually, I thought she was a middle class, but then in the UK, uh, there's a difference between the middle and the upper class. So the reviewers for this paper from which this discussion is, she asked me, please say she's part from the part of the upper class. So I'm like, okay, so Laura is still part of the upper class. There is an attempt by writers to be inclusive of intersectional identities um, in terms of introducing new characters in the reboot trilogy. So actually in the Tomb Raider reboot, the crew of the Endurance, they are a much more diverse crew of people. We have four white males and then one white female, which is Lara. But then we also have an African-American woman, which is Jocelyn. We have Japanese-Portuguese-American woman, which is uh, Samantha. It is Lara's friend. And then also an American-New Zealander, which is Jonah, which is also her friend. So... Interestingly also is that all four white males die on Yamatai, which might present a very implicit critique of hegemonic masculinity. And it's only Lara and her non-white friends who escape. And then in Shadow of the Tomb Raider 2, we see that Lara works with the indigenous women and men from Paititi. 
And also there's a Peruvian woman that plays a more significant role in the game's narrative. And in addition to having non-white friends, Laura also works more with her friends throughout rather than working alone. So in the previous Tomb Raider games, you know, Laura is really this lone warrior. She rarely works with other people. But uh, another theorist, her name is Catherine Wright, she said that fourth wave heroism is, and I quote, tied to the people, places, and things the heroine encounters. So the heroine actually undergoes a polymythic journey that shifts the focus from the individual autonomous subject to the radical imminence of the network. So just to rephrase that, um, the the focus is shifted from this lone warrior to a, a heroine that really relies on the people around her in her heroic journey. So there's one uh, chapter, well, actually two chapters in Rise, the Tomb Raider reboot. It's called Cry for Help and No One Left Behind, where Lara actually works together with the remaining crew, <laughs> the ones that survived up to that point, and they help each other. In No One Left Behind, she actually tries to help them escape from a cavern, but throughout the chapter, they talk to her and she talks to them, them and they kind of devise a strategy for escape together. So we see that the heroine no longer works alone, but she works with people. And then also another aspect of fourth wave heroism is male and female camaraderie. So we see more recently a lot of female characters that work together with a male main character sometimes, or a male character, without getting romantically involved with them. So in Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Jonah who is Lara's friend. He's a constant companion to her. In Rise of the Tomb Raider, he initially accompanies Lara on her mission, but then they are separated early on. So we don't really see him again for the rest of the game. But in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, he plays a much more significant role to the point where sometimes they need to lift objects together in order for Lara to move on to the next level or the next area of the map. And sometimes they solve puzzles together and they also take down enemies together, which is a, a very big shift from the old version of Lara that really did everything alone. So another theorist, his name is Martin Ricksand. He wrote about Mad Max and Furiosa's relationship in Mad Max Fury Road, that Furiosa also does not act, at Ma act as Max's sidekick nor a romantic interest, but their relationship illustrates what can be accomplished when the sexes cooperate instead of insisting on acting independently of one another in infantile attempts to one-up each other. And um, that is also a fourth-wave feminist analysis of Fury Road. If you want to know more about Fury Road, you can listen to episode 25 of this podcast, which is last week's episode. I talked about Mad Max and Furiosa. Um, so this, you know, male-female camaraderie is also a very clear uh, facet of fourth-wave heroism. Right. Uh, why Why is that so? Um, well, if you follow Emma Watson, you know that she is the ambassador of the He for She campaign. So some people have suggested that fourth wave feminism 
it also emphasizes men's responsibility in the empowerment of women. So that is why we see heroines working together with male characters, um, you know, to to empower, to be empowered or in their heroic journeys. So just as a side note there. All right. So the final crucial aspect of fourth wave heroism, which is also displayed in the new version of Lara, is a renewed interest in mother-daughter relationships. I think I talked about this in episode one on Philippa Giorgio in Star Trek Discovery. So you can have a listen there. I'm definitely going to focus on this again in another episode later. But in a fourth wave feminist analysis of Maleficent, Melissa Wheeler also notes how Maleficent does not find love in the form of a heterosexual relationship, but rather in the form of a daughter. And for Aurora, the princess in Maleficent, true love's first kiss that breaks her eternal sleep is not from a prince, but it was from her adoptive mother, Maleficent. And I loved this moment in the movie. I know we're not talking about Maleficent today, but um, that was really special <laughs> for me to, you know, that, that Maleficent's kiss is the kiss that wakes Aurora and not the prince's kiss. Anyway, um, it is also Maleficent's relationship with her adopted daughter that is key to her complexity. That is also a fourth wave characteristic. And then in the sequel of Maleficent in 2019, we also see that the focus remains on the intricacies of Maleficent and Aurora's relationship. Okay, um, so I just use Maleficent as an example there because it's about mother-daughter relationships. But we see for the new version of Lara Croft 2, where her father was always the main figure in her past and he was always the one that kind of guided her missions, even though you know, from the grave, because <laughs> he, he died when Laura was young. Um, and she would often go on adventures, you know, kind of to continue her father's quest. Um, but in the new Tomb Raider games, this emphasis shifts to her mother. So even though she still makes reference to her father in Tomb Raider Reboot, and her quest in Rise of the Tomb Raider is a continuation of her father's quest, in DLC released for Rise of the Tomb Raider and in a main story chapter in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, greater emphasis is placed on the profound influence that Laura's mother, whose name is Amelia Croft, had on Laura Croft. In the Rise of the Tomb Raider DLC called Blood Ties, the story starts with Laura receiving a letter threatening her removal from Croft Manor as she has no legal claim to the estate. And then the chapter's ob objective is for Laura to find the will in order to prove that she owns the estate. So at the end of the mission, Laura discovers a crypt beneath the manor where her mother is buried. And then this acts as proof that the manor belongs to Laura. And then in the crypt, Laura also finds her mother's final note to her. It reads, my energy, my love is within you, Laura. It will always be. So from this DLC, it becomes apparent that Laura inherited many of her heroic qualities from her mother. And it also implies that she inherited the Croft Manor, not only from her father, but also from her mother. And then in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, she's even more central to the narrative. 
um, like I mentioned in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, there's a dedicated chapter. It's called Brave Adventurer, which follows the playable dream flashback memory of young Lara. So in this chapter, young Lara finds a hidden room with all her late mother's possessions, a storybook that her mother used to read her, and a paintbrush and bracelet that all trigger fond memories of her and her mother. And this chapter also shows an argument between Laura's mother and her father, which reveals that Richard Croft was not an involved father, actually, and often neglected Laura in pursuit of his work. So in these ways, the new version of Laura Croft, her relationship with her mother is very important. And this shows a fourth wave feminist embrace of positive, positive mother-daughter relationships. So yes, those are the main aspects of fourth wave heroism that I wanted to point out today in terms of Laura Croft. I hope that you found this episode interesting and I hope to bring more about fourth wave feminism in future episodes because it's definitely a very, very interesting topic since it is so new and upcoming. So yes, everyone, thank you so much for listening and tuning in once again. Next week, I will bring you another exciting episode. I still need to watch the Suicide Squad movie, the new one, so I might do an episode on that. Otherwise, you can look forward to an episode on Amanda Ripley from the Alien Isolation video game. So we'll see what's going to happen. Just a reminder, if you're not following on Instagram or Twitter or YouTube, uh, please subscribe and uh, please follow the Instagram account. I have added some new (laughs) t-shirts to my um, t-shirt account. So I'm on Teespring, Teepublic and Redbubble. So if you want some cool sci-fi movie references t-shirts or sci-fi feminist t-shirts then head over there and uh, grab a shirt (laughs) and um, yes I wish you a very good week ahead Uh, like I said thank you for listening live long and prosper keep safe and healthy until next week this is the sci-fi feminist signing off bye-bye this show is brought to you by hollow sweet media computer list other available hollow sweet media programs Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Beyond Farpoint, a Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. Nephew stroke inner child. I'm Very kidding. much so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, they could make yeah. that more blatant if they oh, tried. Oh, definitely, yeah. And, then you get, and you get the... Uh... And sister-in-law stroke mother. Yeah, um... absolutely, yeah. And of course you get that scene when they do eventually slug it out in the mud figuratively, mentally. It's all done, yeah. Absolutely. The, it's so, interesting... yeah, the brother confronts him with his vulnerability in that sentence of did you come back here for me to look after you loading holosuite preview program for random trek review a star trek review podcast yeah the one you mentioned with dr crusher is hilarious because it gets down to her and captain picard and so it's like they have this giant galaxy class ship and there's just the two of them and he acts like it's a normal thing and it's just absolutely ridiculous right two people on that giant starship and there's even the point where where she says computer how many personnel would it take to run this ship and they're like 832 or something and picard's like oh yeah that is kind of weird i guess (laughs) i thought we were just doing it the two of us you know like that was pretty funny computer deactivate holosuite